Well, as you remain standing, you can grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Malachi is where we find ourselves together tonight. An easy way to get to that minor prophet of Malachi, if you don't know how to get there, is to turn to the first book in the New Testament, which is the Gospel of Matthew, and just head one page to your left and you'll find our text tonight, which begins in chapter 3, verse 13, all the way through the end of chapter 4 which is verse 6. So let me uh, read that passage for us and then uh, pray for God's blessing on our study and we'll begin together. So uh, listen once again as the Lord does speak to you through His perfect Word. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that will leave neither them root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. But they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, declares the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, For all Israel, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the day that is great and awesome of the Lord that comes. He will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let us follow the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you that you have a promise to speak to us by your word, and even you speak now uh, through the work of your spirit and the application of this truth to our hearts. And we do pray that you would open our hearts to receive wonderful words uh, from your word of life this evening, uh, that we might behold the Son of Righteousness, our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and in beholding him find life in his name. And we do pray it in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure many of you know that days not only make up our ordinary life, but certain days have power to define our ordinary life. It's true that sometimes one of the days, a kind of day that can define and shape our ordinary life could be a sad day. You could think about the anniversary, perhaps, of a tragic death or loss of a loved one. Uh, There are other times, aren't there, children, where days of celebration mean 
Uh, your ordinary life changes and finds some degree of orientation around that day. It might be uh, the day when school finally ends. It might be your birthday. It could be a holiday like July 4th or Thanksgiving or Easter. Uh, we find ourselves, don't we, in this month of December in our American culture, uh, caught up in the throes of, of this reality of which I speak, days having power to change a person's life. It's just displayed before our watching eyes, if you have eyes to see over the course of these weeks of December, for a day like Christmas, it changes many things in many ordinary Americans' life. You start to eat things that you didn't eat or don't eat other parts of the year. You start to sing songs that you don't sing at other times of the year. You start to decorate your house in a way that's altogether different than other times of the year. You start to make travel plans and family plans that's altogether different than other parts of the year. There, there's, a, there's a truth to the reality that days can shape, days can change, days can utterly reorient your entire life. And the reason I tell you that is because when we come to the end of Malachi, uh, which you know is the end of the Old Testament itself in our English Bible, we come to the day of days. As God speaks this one final time to his beloved people, until he goes into silence for some four centuries. Uh, What he tells them to focus on, to think about most preeminently, is a day that is coming. And it's a day that, of course, should change. It's a day that should shape. It's a day that should radically reorient their life if they truly understand what is coming when that day comes. Uh, arrives. And so when you come to the book of Malachi, you, you come to a, a story in the life of God's people where once again, not surprisingly for the beloved people of God, they, they are waiting on the Lord to act. Uh, last week, if you were with us in the evening service, we looked at Second Chronicles chapter 36. And it was this sad and tragic story of the southern kingdom of Judah uh, finally reaching a point of no remedy, of no return with the Lord meaning that he brought upon them the covenant curses of exile from the promised land as they were carted off by the pagan nation of Babylon. And we pick up the story tonight in the ministry of this prophet Malachi, some 100 years after the exiles returned from Babylon and made it back to Jerusalem. If you know your story about the return from exile, by this point in uh, the nation's history, a, a version of the temple has been rebuilt. The city walls have been recast and set fortified once again. And the people came back to the promised land with, with fervor and zeal, with the expectation of the prophetic words that had come to them from these exilic prophets, that there was a time coming when the Messiah would arrive. There was a time coming when the Messiah would come and, of course, reunify the divided kingdom. He would bring with him blessing to the nations, that peace and justice would finally come on all peoples. And yet year passed to another year, a decade passed into another decade, and nothing seemed to change. And so where we find God's people in this book of Malachi is not only are they waiting on the Lord, as is so often the case with all of God's people throughout all of human history, they're not waiting very well. They've slidden right back into their uh, favorite sins of corruption and justice and idolatry. And so uh, the time was right for God to send another prophet. And Malachi represents the last call of God until it goes into almost a half a millennium of silence from the Lord. So I wonder, you know, kids, how 
well you are at waiting upon the Lord, how good you are at waiting upon the Lord. Maybe, students, you know sometimes how, how simple it is to illustrate our lack of ability to wait is simply if you messaged a friend on your phone and only a few seconds go by before you suddenly become impatient that there's not a prompt response. And then minutes uh, begin to follow as well and you wonder if everything is right in the world because your friend hasn't responded to you within two or three minutes of sending some sort of a message. And of course, by this point, with the situation with God's people, it's been years. It's genuinely been decades for some since they heard the Lord speak. And he's going to speak to them in the form of this book with disputations. If you know your structure of Malachi well, you would know that it's, it's basically a prophetic word from the Lord that's framed around these six disputations. Essentially arguments, children, that the Lord has with his people or issues that they have with him that he comes and, and answers. So we're going to pick up the story tonight with the sixth disputation. But to give you a sense of what's come before, uh, you can summarize the previous five disputes uh, with simple questions like the first one was, do you know that I love you? The second one was, do you honor me with your worship? The third was, do you honor me with your marriages? The fourth was, do you believe that I am just? And the fifth was, do you honor me with your money? Do you honor me with your tithe? And the dispute before us tonight is one over service that you could summarize simply with the question of, do you believe it's vain to serve the Lord? Do you honor me with your service? So I want you to see in the two simple sections that are before us tonight is first, the final dispute. That's verses 13 through 15. And then in verses 16 through the end of chapter 4, we, we get the Lord's final answer. So the final dispute, notice again, verse 13. The Lord says, your words have been hard against me. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And if you glance back to verse 17 of chapter 2, that's the fourth dispute in the book of Malachi. And what you would see in chapter 2, verse 17, is that the Lord speaks about being wearied by the words of his people. And it's seemingly by this point at the end of the book that uh, the words that are wearying the Lord in his displeasure have now risen even to a greater level where these are words that are hard against the Lord. And students, if you understand uh, the people's response that the Lord is capturing there in verse 13, it would sound something more like we might say today, wait, hold on a minute, Lord. When did we ever say anything hard against you? And kids, I do hope you know that the Lord sees all things. And because we know the Lord knows all things, it also means that the Lord hears all things. And one of the truths about God's knowledge that is so perfect is that he knows our heart even better than we know it. So it's quite possible that you could be like these people at this time in the promised land where you're wondering, well, when have we ever said anything hard against you? And the Lord comes along and says, well, well, here's the situation, actually. You haven't merely just said something against me. You've said something hard against me. And here's what you've said. Notice verse 14 and 15. You've said, it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test. And they escape. So what are they saying? Uh, simply put, 
Lord, it's pointless and profitless to serve you. There's no good whatsoever that comes from honoring you. No good whatsoever that comes from worshiping you. Uh, you could say in some ways it's almost like this ancient form of this pagan prosperity spirituality that they were relating to the Lord only from the sheer standpoint of hoping to get something from him. It wasn't enough for them to enjoy just communion and fellowship with the Lord himself, to worship him with reverence and awe. They wanted to get something from him. Maybe a better way to say it is that their spirituality was one of transaction. What can I do for you that will lead you to do something for me? What can I do by way of my service that will bring blessing into my life? And they're saying, well, there's no blessing that comes into her life. Not only that, it seems like the wicked, they're the ones that always prosper, and it's the, the believers that have all the hardship in life. And you might be in here today, and you would say, I've never been so bold in, in that basic word against the Lord to say it's utterly pointless, God, to serve you, because nothing good comes into my life. But, but do you know that many people, even in our time, can have this transaction-like approach to Christian spirituality. It might go something like this. Lord, I'm serving you because I believe in so doing, I will keep myself free from sorrow and tragedy. Oh, Lord, I'm serving you in the expectation that comfort and security will belong to my family. Oh, Lord, I hope you notice that I'm serving you because I really should get the worldly desires of my heart for all of my earnest devotion to you. That's what's going on with the people here. They're saying, yeah, nothing's going well. Nothing's getting better. There's no tangible blessing in our life. And if we look at the nations around us who don't love you, who don't serve you, everything seems to go well with them. So what's the point, God, in serving you? And the Lord says, this is a hard word that you have spoken against me. And it's that final dispute that leads to the final answer in the rest of our text. And interestingly, if you notice just verse 16, which we'll read in a second, it's quite unlike everything that's come before in the previous disputes here in Malachi, because of what the normal pattern is. The Lord kind of engages in this way of speaking about the complaint that they have uh, against the Lord, and then he responds quickly and swiftly with the speech. But in verse 16, probably the right way to think about it is the Lord begins by responding with a short story. Look what we're told then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And the book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now, kids, it's important, isn't it, there, if your Bible, is an open, your Bible is open in front of you in verse 16, to recognize that the Lord paid attention. He heard. He, he marked down, as it were, uh, those who feared his name, those who esteemed his name. Uh, he had heard, yes, the majority of people in the land grumbling against him. But he had heard that minority report, too, of people who were grateful for him, people who were glorying in him. The Lord pays attention to every single person, doesn't he? And kids, if the Lord was paying attention to you like he is, which group would you belong to? Those prone to always grumble against him? Are those prone to do everything to glorify him? Would you be written down in that book of those who fear the Lord, of those who esteem his name? 
Well, you see, he begins his answer, verse 17 and 18. He says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So this is his final answer to the final dispute. A day of distinction is coming. And it is a day that will change everything, as what the Lord says. On Monday of this last week, it was our second son, Owen's 11th birthday. And one of the peculiar family traits that belong to the Stone Home is that all of our children are raised listening to stories of Lord of the Rings over and over, uh, listening to the audiobooks a number of different times. And uh, what that trait has generated is something of a family tradition, is that when you turn 10 years old, uh, you're allowed to watch the first Lord of the Rings film, The Fellowship of the Ring. When you turn 11 years old, you're allowed to watch the second one, The Two Towers. And so Owen turned 11 on Monday, therefore Monday night. Oh, a few of us, Hudson, his older brother himself, and Emily and I, we were watching The Two Towers. And as Emily and I have done this uh, throughout the years, it's always fascinating to, to watch the children watch the movie. Because for so many years, this is a story that's just existed in their imaginations. And it now is like played out, as it were, on the big screen for the very first time. And there were a number of times along the way that Owen was saying something quite noticeable in terms of how often he was repeating, even though he knows the story, because so much of this Two Towers story is occupied with the Battle of Helm's Deep, and so much of the Battle of Helm's Deep is the story of everything going the way of the evil forces. And Owen kept saying something like, where's Gandalf? Why hasn't he shown up yet? Well, because the story... At Gandalf early on, this great wizard saying, look to my coming at the fifth day, first light. Because it's a coming that was going to change everything. It's a coming that, if you know the story, it did change everything. And what the Lord is telling his people here in the prophet Malachi is that there is a day coming when everything is going to change. It's a day that's going to answer this complaint you have against me. It's a coming of the Son of Righteousness, he says. And I want you to see two things about the Son of Righteousness in his coming in chapter 4. First, the Son of Righteousness comes with vengeance. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. The Lord says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And kids, I don't know if you know that language there of arrogant and evildoers being burned in an oven. To such a degree, they become like stubble. But it was an ancient way of talking about they become chaff. Or said differently, according to this passage, they become worthless and just blow away in God's judgment. So, in the final answer, who is it that actually is engaged in purposeless living a worthless living, but those who engage in evil, those who are arrogant, those who don't fear the Lord. You say it's actually those who serve the Lord that are worthless in their pursuit. The Lord says, no, it's actually the exact opposite. And he's, he's using language that would, of course, been terrifying to that ancient world, burning like an oven. Uh, some of you know, of course, the danger that can belong to just sticking a hand in an oven. 
I mean, earlier this week, I was uh, cooking something in the oven for the children, and it was on broil, and I just needed to flip it over, and rather than pull the pan out and just kind of flip it over on the stove, I just turned each thing over one by one, and after doing that about 12 or 16 times, I noticed my hand starting to get quite red, and it almost smelled as though the hand, I'm sorry, the hair on my hand was beginning to burn, because it just was in the oven for only a few seconds. And the Lord says, His coming in judgment, the Son of Righteousness with vengeance, as like all of those who are apart from the Lord in their arrogance and evil. They will be consumed. And you see the final phrase once again in verse 1. So that it will leave them neither root nor branch. It's a way of speaking about the complete utter destruction that belongs to those who don't know the Lord. So, what he's saying is, you look out on this temporary fleeting world. And you see people who don't love me supposedly prospering a day's coming when for all eternity they won't prosper but they will suffer the just penalty of their arrogance and evil the son of righteousness he comes with vengeance the good news is that secondly verse 2 and 3 the son of righteousness comes with victory you see the contrast the distinction that belongs to this day verse 2 and 3 but for you who fear my name Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, declares the Lord of hosts. It's a wonderful phrase, isn't it, for the Lord Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, that the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You know that Darkness often terrifies people, and nothing begins to heal the soul, calm the mind as the coming of the daylight. And the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is likened to that, the Son of Righteousness finally rising in the east, and with him he brings healing. With him he brings such healing that like calves going forth from the stall will be the joy that belongs to God's people. Now, we don't really live, do we, in an agrarian society. I doubt many of you in this room have calves at home that are potentially going to leap out of a stall in your backyard later on tonight or perhaps tomorrow. I suppose, though, a number of you might have something like a little dog at home or a big dog at home that might be in a crate, that might be in its own room, and you get home later on tonight and you let the dog out, and what do they begin to do? Just go out very quickly with joy and happiness because there's freedom, because there's a release from the cage. And that victory that belongs to the Son of Righteousness for God's people is like that. Finally, freely, and fully experiencing that joy. But one of the great mysteries that belongs to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, you see then again in verse 3, is that we participate in the judgment. That vengeance that he brings upon his enemies. Said in other places, isn't it, in the New Testament, that we join with him in crushing the serpent's head. That we join with him in crushing the serpent's seed. seed, And you shall tread down the wicked. Notice again verse 3. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, declares the Lord of hosts. You say it's pointless, worthless to serve me. You say that it's the evildoers who are actually blessed. But let me tell you, there's a day coming when I'm going to set everything right, and you'll see for all eternity 
the joy that belongs to those who serve me. And they will see those who are evildoers and arrogant. An eternity full of burning oven-like judgment that will reduce them to nothing in destruction. So this is a story, isn't it? Of a return. It's a story pointing us to that final return of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the first home that Emily and I owned, the previous owners had installed a doggy door on this door that led from the garage into the back hallway. And when our oldest son Hudson was something like one year old, it'd be quite common that I would come home from the office and when the garage door opened, Emily evidently would have told Hudson, you know, across our small little house, hey, daddy's home. And so as I was pulling in the driveway and waiting for the garage to uh, reach its full height, you know, to pull the car in, what I would see there on the plexiglass of that doggy door is my little one-year-old's face just mashed up, you know, right against the doggy door. Such was his readiness for the return. And I want you to see now as the Old Testament closes, verses 4, 5, and 6, how it speaks about what should belong to God's people's readiness for this coming day of days, this return of the Lord. In many ways, verse 4, 5, and 6 of Malachi chapter 4 give us a summary of the Old Testament ethic, a summary of what it means to be ready for the Lord's return. Verse 4 tells us this, the law calls for obedience. Look at verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. You notice again, skip back up to verse 14. What was part of their charge against the Lord? What is the profit of our keeping his charge? And then he closes by saying, remember the law and follow me in obedience. What does it mean to show your readiness for the Lord but keeping his commandments? What does Jesus Christ himself say? Those who love me will obey my commandments. The law calls for obedience, and I want you to see in verse 5 and 6, the prophets call for repentance. The Lord concludes by saying, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land. It's a decree of utter destruction. So the law and the prophets, obedience and repentance. And again, it's striking. It's as though the people's charge against the Lord. Again, verse 14, what's the use of obedience or of walking in mourning? What's the use of repentance? He says at the end, it's everything. For it shows your readiness for my coming day. It's everything because it shows your love for me. It's everything. Because it shows your fear and esteeming me before the world. And you might know that even the Lord Jesus Christ himself spoke of John the Baptist and his prophetic ministry as having the spirit of Elijah. As he was going to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord Jesus at at the first advent of our Savior. But is it not true that God prophetically still through his word is always calling us to repentance? Prophetically through his word in his law, always calling us to obedience to prepare us for that second coming of the Lord. That that great day of days that will be the day of distinction, 
That will be the day of division. That will be the day when things are finally set as they ought to be. And I wonder if your obedience, if your repentance is showing your faith, is showing your love, is showing your hope in the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us to always be ready for your return, that you would help us to not be a people that are full of a spirit of complaint or grumbling against you, but that we would know the simple joy, even the lasting happiness that belongs to hope-filled service and dependence upon you. Paris, we pray for the coming of your son. Give us readiness for his return, and we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we respond with...